Hi, everybody. Thank you for joining us. I know we had a little bit of some technical difficulties to get started with, but we're, we're here and we're ready to go. So I'm hoping that everybody kind of stuck with us for a little bit. Um, so we're talking a really interesting topic um, tonight, uh, ED and legal issues. And um, we're going to tell you a little bit about how to participate um, and introduce our guests in just a bit. But my name is Rachel and I am a school psychologist. I'm working right now in the state of Maryland. Rebecca? Hi, I'm Rebecca. I'm a school psychologist working in the state of Connecticut. I'd like to tell you guys how to participate. Um, if you are on Facebook, please just comment uh, or message me on School Psyched, your school psychologist, or the School Psyched podcast page. I'll be looking for notifications there. Also on Twitter, using the hashtag Psyched Podcast. I'll be looking out for you. I'm, I'm hoping you'll have um, some questions or things to share. And here is our maternity leave replacement, Eric. Hi, I'm Eric. Opportunity consult for Emma. I'm a school psychologist in Central Connecticut. All right. Um, so I'm going to introduce our guest tonight. Um, and then shout out to Anna if you're watching. She had her baby. She's doing great. Um, okay. <laughs> um, but Thomas Huberty, PhD, ABPP, is professor of uh, school psychology at Indiana University. He's a licensed psychologist, is board certified in school psychology by the American Board of Professional Psychology and, and is a nationally certified school psychologist. Um, he has a range of practical experiences, including being a school psychologist and pediatric psychologist, as well as working with Head Start, uh, children with moderate to severe developmental disabilities and in community mental health. His primary teaching areas are developmental, psychology, social emotional assessments, and cognitive behavioral therapy. His research interests are in um, internalizing problems, especially anxiety and depression um, in children and adolescents. For the past 28 years, he has been an independent hearing officer for due process hearings under um, IDEA, having presided over numerous proceedings, including students known um, or suspected to have emotional disabilities. So welcome. Thank you. Well, that's a that's quite a uh, a resume you have there. So we're we're really excited to have you. Um, yeah. And I know you have a PowerPoint too, so I'll let you kind of get to it. Um, just because I know we're short on time. <laughs> but again, my uh, my interestness is and the reason why I put all the things in into the introduction is because I have a sort of unique blend of experiences blending school psychology, psychology, and legal issues. You know, so I think it makes it kind of unique. I've done several presentations like this. In fact, I think Rachel attended one or more of mine in the past at NAS. Um, but the reason I, um, I'm really interested in emotional disturbance and I'm very interested in legal issues. So what I thought would might be useful would be, be, be to talk about some of the uh, practical legal issues associated with ED. Now, I recognize that in some states, your definitions may be slightly different, but it's been my experience that most of the definitions are very similar to the federal one. So I don't think I'll be too far off most of the time um, because most states I've seen use the basic definition that the federal government uses with maybe some slight wording changes. Uh, in Indiana, we call it emotional disability, for example, but the basic language is pretty much the same. So I think a lot of this will apply. However, uh, there may be differences in your state law. And uh, in fact, on the last page, I offer a disclaimer because I'm not really offering legal advice, but just some of the some of the things that um, I've run into that uh, you, you may find useful. Uh, this is actually a, a very short version of a longer, much longer workshop I've done. So what I want to do is just share some of the major points, particularly since we got a bit, uh, late start, and then share um, some of my perspectives. And if we have questions as we go along, that's absolutely fine. Um, I typically get lots of questions about this. Um, I'll start by really talking about the IDE definition, and I'm not. And you see it there on the on the uh, on the this the slides. So I won't go through um, uh, a, a lot of it in detail because most of you are, are, are familiar with it. Um, I really sort of talk about some of the problems with the definition, and you know, many of you who have had to um, had to uh, deal with the ED, and I'm sure many of you have. It's uh, to me. It's 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 probably the most difficult of all the areas, uh, the federal definitions, and legally it's a very difficult. It's very challenging, um, because uh, uh, it just goes to the ambiguity and just differences in the way people interpret interpret the the criteria and the 
the definition and so on. Um, so um, let's start talking about some of the initial uh, problems with this. And again, feel free to chime in. The first is inability. Uh, the problem is that um, uh, if you really applied an inability standard the way some people did way back in the 80s, it basically they say that that you, you couldn't learn anything or that you that it would be an absolute lack of ability to learn or whatever. And that's not really what the law means. There's In the federal law, there's the distinction between the, the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. And the spirit of the law is is really, I think, in many respects more important, although many people get stuck with the uh, idea that it, it's, a, it's a literal interpretation. When I started doing legal work many years ago. Um, in fact, I said to my mentor, who's still my mentor, um, I was sort of expecting the law to be pretty cut and dried, and he sort of smiled at me like, you've got to be kidding. Um, and and I found that out after I got working in a more, it's like, it's much more ambiguous. The law is much more ambiguous than you think. And this particular area is, is particularly ambiguous. In fact, my very first hearing I did was on emotional disturbance at that time in Indiana. We called it emotionally handicapped. Um, but um, but the, uh, the the things that uh, I would talk about this a little bit from a from legal perspective and share some of my own uh, hearing experiences. Uh, basically, as you know, you have to make sure that uh, this, this uh, that the inability to learn is not due to things other than emotional disability or emotional disturbance. Uh, in other words, that the, the child has to be able to uh, not or not be able to function because of the emotional behavioral problems, not because of anything else. And Quick question, because I'm going to have a million questions. And okay. that's fine. Could you just really quickly talk about, you know, as school psychologists, some of us may not have had any any dealings with a hearing officer yet and might not understand the importance of, you know, what a hearing officer does, and especially in relation to us, if we okay. haven't been to that experience. Could you just briefly, like, what, what does a hearing officer do, just so everyone knows? <laughs> okay, basically what a hearing officer does, um, a hearing is... It's sort of like what, uh, sort of like a bench trial, like you see on TV. There's there's no jury. It's just a judge, and um, and the parties generally it's it's a judge is in the middle. One party is on one side, represented by an attorney, almost always, and the other party. So you have the parent and the uh, uh, school, each represented usually by an attorney, one on each side, and it really is is somewhat like a bench trial, like you see on TV. It follows a lot of the same rules, a little more relaxed, a little more informal. Um, but there is testimony presented, there are exhibits presented, and so what the hearing officer has to do is basically preside over the hearing, make judgments, um, and uh, make rulings, and just basically hear the evidence. When that's all done, uh, when they finally get the hearing done, then the hearing officer writes a decision, and that's binding, which may or may not be what either party wants. So it's it's very much it's a it is a very legal proceeding in Indiana. We're called administrative law judges legally, but in Indiana we're called independent independent hearing officers. In the IDA, they're called impartial hearing officers. But it's the same idea. The idea being that we have no vested interest or conflict of interest. Like there's one school when they file for hearings, I don't take them because I used to consult with them. So you'd have to remove the bias. Um, and um, th these processes, uh, they generally take um, anywhere from 30 to 120 days if we actually go to a hearing uh, because they're, they typically go four or five days at a time. Um, and there's a period of about a month after it's over before the decision. So they could spread out over several months. The law says they're supposed to be done within 45 days, but in many cases, that's just not practical because attorneys always ask for extensions, always. That's just what attorneys do. So they get an extra 30 days almost automatically. And then sometimes what happens is the, uh, the, the uh, there, there may be a motion for an independent evaluation that has to be done. That may have to be done before we actually get to the hearing. So there are a number of things that can really affect it. Uh, the longest one I ever had was nine days, and it was spread over about three months. Um, and I can tell you um, from, from experience, I've never had a hearing ever where the school psychologist did not testify. It always happens. So if you're involved in one of these things, the chances of you having to testify are, ex are extremely high uh, if you were involved in the case, like particularly if you did the evaluation or did some consultant. So um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a formal legal process, but it's a little more relaxed. 
Uh, I don't wear a robe. I don't use a gavel. Uh, occasionally, they call me Your Honor, which is kind of cool. Uh, <laughs> do you have a law degree? No, I do not. Okay. Indiana is one of the few states that does not require a law degree. Most states do. Indiana actually now does. They changed it here a few years ago, but because I've been doing it so long, we're, I'm sort of grandfathered in. And there are probably half a dozen to a dozen states that still allow non-attorneys to do this. But they're getting increasingly litigious, increasingly complex legally. So um, increasing states are going to re requiring that, attor that attorneys make sense. Um, I've been appealed, though, and I've never been overturned yet. So um, so I'm doing something right, I guess. Yeah. I love it. And then uh, when the hearing is over, then the, the, uh, I issue a written decision, and the either party then can appeal it to federal court, or state or federal court. Usually it's federal court. And that's ones where I've been appealed to federal court. Uh, not, not been overturned yet. I think four or five times, I believe. So that's basically how the mechanism works. It's usually the parent who files the request, um, and then the um, um, and then it goes from there. Schools can file a request, but they're much more restricted. They really can't file a request for a hearing unless the child's already in special education, and that they dispute the parents continuing with the services. But they can actually initiate a new hearing now uh, if, if the parent doesn't agree to place the child or doesn't agree to evaluation. The school cannot initiate a hearing. They used to be able to do that before 2004. They cannot do that anymore. So, um, but anyway, if we have a hearing, um, they typically can go three to five, six days, spread out probably over a couple of weeks, uh, issue a decision, and uh, that's that's basically how the process works. Okay, well, I want to have here what you see probably is uh, uh, the definite the last definition of the uh, last part of the definition. And the one there at the bottom is the, is the one that really causes uh, most of the problem uh, in terms of practice. And so anyway, the, the, the slide you see there is uh, the one that causes a lot of the problem is the, uh, the social maladjustment. Again, not, not every state has that in the definition. Indiana removed that some time ago. And that really probably causes most of the problems legally because uh, the question then becomes, is the child emotion disturbed or not? Or is the child emotion disturbed? Um, and socially maladjusted, or if the child's only socially maladjusted, do they qualify for services? Are they eligible? And that, that's the one that probably causes the most trouble and has been the subject of a, a numerous uh, uh, you know, lawsuits against schools because of uh, perhaps trying to deny student services. Um, and then the next slide, you see a lot of the, the problematic issues with the um, um, with the definition, and, and again, because of time, we're not going to go again to this. I think you can read it. Uh, the, the one point um, we'll make down there is that third, uh, the third dash point. This is the one that causes a lot of problems, and, um, and I've seen this in, in hearings. I've seen this with regard to how people interpret this. The, um, many people believe that uh, to, to if you uh, have an emotional disability or disturbance, whatever term you, you're using in your state, um, the, the question is, does it only apply to academics or does it also apply to, to behavior and social emotional development? Um, some states, and I know some school psychologists, basically mean that only applies to academics, that you have to be really falling behind in your academics, grades, mm -hmm. not turning in your, um, uh, not turning in homework, failing tests, those kinds of things. And if they're not doing that, despite whatever the behavior is, not if they don't have the academic part, in other words, it's conceivable you can have academic problems, but uh, or sorry, behavioral problems, but not really, not really affecting academics, and that, that becomes a real issue. The uh, the federal law basically talks about functional performance, and so basically, what educational performance is the way that and the most of the case law I've seen, not all because some have broken this apart is that educational performance does include academic and behavioral and social-emotional uh, functioning. So, so if a person is doing well academically, um, and uh, but having a behavior problem, some people would say they don't qualify. That's more what the law intends. But there are there is some case law that has been exactly the opposite. Uh, it says if they're doing fine academically, then they're not emotion disturbed. Uh, that's not the intent of the federal law, and that's not the way the most hearing officers are going to interpret that. However, in some states where you have that, it may be very different. 
in regard to how how people interpret that. And there's actually some case law in some states, and I think it's some of the one of the eastern circuits uh, up around New York or out that area somewhere, where they actually define that uh, uh, as being um, academics only. But that's not really what the law says. In Indiana, we don't have that exclusionary criterion, so it's uh, it's not as much of an issue. But in some places, it, it could be an issue. And uh, and that again, that's really the, the key issue, the key debate. Um, and the way that a lot of um, psychologists uh, sort of interpret this emotional disturbance and social maladjustment uh, exclusion um, is a pretty popular way. We're all familiar with internalizing and externalizing patterns. Mm-hmm. And uh, what a lot of people do is interpret emotional disturbance as being primarily internalizing and social maladjustment as being primarily externalizing. Um, it may, may be intuitively makes sense, uh, but in fact, that, that actually doesn't work because I'm sure most of you know, if you look at the correlations between internalizing symptoms on, and externalizing symptoms on just about any behavior rating scale or any other measure, they, they're, they're correlated about a 0.5, positive 0.5, which means as one goes up, so does the other. So it's really not a real reliable um, way of distinguishing emotional disturbance from social maladjustment, but that's common to the way people do it. And in most cases, they're probably doing it wrong by doing it that way. Uh, the point being, you need to be really looking at a, just a wide range of uh, symptoms and so on. Um, and to a large extent, it's a clinical judgment. It's a it's a, a consensus of the case conference committee or whatever term you use in your state. Uh, federal law calls it the IEP team. In Indiana, we call it case conference committee. Um, but the... Um, um, but the, the, so this is one of the, the, some of the bigger problems, um, and that um, uh, basically what the law says is if you're going to use this, the person, the child would have to have um, internalizing problems. They might have all externalizing problems, but if they only have externalizing problems and no internalizing problems. That's social maladjustment. It's not emotional disturbance. But in in fact, most kids who have uh, acting out problems, even if you uh, look at this, you know, if you even look at them on things like uh, behavior rating scales or self-report measures, they oftentimes don't show up as clinically significant, but they frequently do have a lot of sub uh, sub symptom level kind of thing, which probably still says that you have things going on. And most of these, many of these kids actually have a lot of anxiety that uh, that again does not show up on uh, a anxiety scale like a mask or RCMAS or something like that. But they do have a lot of clinical anxiety, which probably says that's underlying it. So, so um, and the way the law way the law is, and if there's a doubt, you always give the benefit of the doubt to the child. So um, so basically, in, on that, uh, that tenth slide there, you really can't rely upon the internalizing, externalizing dimension uh, as the only way to do this. And in fact, um, one of the things you have to be very careful about when you're looking at ED is some people use um, they use a difference between an internalizing score and externalizing score or whatever else as sort of like a cut point or something like that. Federal law specifically prohibits in all areas of, of eligibility schools or schools from using any single measure, any single criterion to determine eligibility. So that's why it gets really much more complicated than doing ED assessments because um, there's just a lot of information that's inconsistent. Mm-hmm. Uh, if that you know, gives you a perspective, uh, I'll stop and see if there are any questions from anybody before I go on a little further here. I have a question. Um, I, I was just looking uh, at one definition of social maladjustment and it versus emotional disturbance, and it seems like the main, um, in, in different behavior areas such as uh, school behavior, attitude towards school, attendance, peer relations. The main difference was that an, a child with an emotional disturbance can't help their behavior, whereas a socially maladjusted child is just unwilling to change their behavior. Is is that a way to determine one from the other? Well, what? that's it's certainly a way that's been proposed. Um, but um, you know, this is a difference of yeah, again, can't versus won't. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the problem is we don't have a really reliable way of, of de- determining that. 
but it certainly is one way that people do this. And if you had a way to uh, reliably measure that, it could be a defensible approach. Um, it may not necessarily be accurate, but it could be a defensible approach by saying um, the child is so anxious or uh, they simply can't uh, can't participate or, or whatever else. Whereas a kid with social maladjustment values that they choose to misbehave. Um, you know, I you know, that intuitively makes some sense, but many kids are you know, come from uh, most kids who have social maladjustment as a general rule come from come tend to come from dysfunctional families. So how can you say that they're not bringing things to school with them in terms of emotions, feelings, fears, anxieties, anger, whatever else that's not spilling over into school? So um, that's a popular way, but I'm not sure it's it's uh, it's, it's the the best way. But that's one way people do it. And and given how um, how loosely, I mean, the, the, you mentioned how there isn't really a, a particular definition for social maladjustment, and then even if there was, if you know, they can be social mal socially maladjusted if they're also emotionally disabled or disturbed. Right. Uh, so, as school psychologists, how important is it for us to address in our evaluation social maladjustment, or is it something that you know? we shouldn't even really be concerned with? Like, how important is it? Well, I think to some extent, it's going to depend on what your state says. My feeling is, and what the law reads, um, that if if a child really does have some significant emotional problems, um, and but they're also, and they may or may not be having some behavior problems, it probably, it's probably interfering with their social functioning, and it may not be interfering with their academic functioning. So generally, what uh, I wouldn't spend a lot of time trying to differentiate them, to really try to establish the you know the impairments that are being caused by these behaviors, whether it be academic and or social, and really base the eligibility on that, and don't really pay as much attention to social maladjustment. Now, you will have some people who disagree with that. Uh, that's fine. Uh, legally, you're certainly on safer ground because what happens if if these if the kids. Uh, um, are determined to be social maladjusted, they are basically then uh, left in the education population. The risk of dropout, the risk of being greater problems increases dramatically, and the risk of school failure. So I think in many respects, if you think about this with regard to the kids themselves, you're doing a, a disservice by not giving them something. Now, if you didn't find them eligible, but if there was still a really good program, maybe under Section 504 or some kind of school program, that can still serve the same purpose, but just to, what because what I see is a lot of schools, a lot of uh, case comms committees spending a awful lot of time trying to say is this child emotionally disturbed or socially maladjusted, when in fact uh, they should be really thinking what we can, what can we do for this kid, and the law is not going to give you grief if you include a child who is marginal, um, in terms of social maladjustment versus ED. They're not going to give you a lot of grief, and it's probably not going to go to a hearing if you do that. So you're going to be legally defensible uh, by really not placing very much emphasis on the social adjustment and really trying to, um, uh, to really trying to just differentiate that. There are actually a couple of scales out there that attempt to uh, di distinguish between emotional disturbance and social maladjustment. Really look at them; they're all they're both the ones I'm familiar with are based upon emotional disturbance being internalizing, uh, primarily, and social maladjustment being externalizing again. That's probably the way the items or the scales are constructed, but we know from research that they, they're not that clean. So I would spend, some, I would not spend a lot of time trying to differentiate. I'd try to find a way to evaluate for what the child's needs are and go from there. You know, this might be a good spot to just talk about our poll for just a second, if you don't mind, uh, Dr. Hibberty. Sure. Um, so we have a pump on the school site uh, podcast page uh, that talks about what specific um, methods school psychologists are using in evaluations. So, um, you know, thing or less or criteria really was enough information. Um, so I'll just read through what other psychologists are using in response to the poll. We had 23 people respond that they're using observations across all settings. Okay. We had 23 people respond that they're using parent, teacher, and student interviews. Okay. Uh, 21 people responded that they're using general behavior scales such as the MASP or the CBRS. Okay. 19 people are also assessing academic achievement. So 
looking at the impact on the academics. Uh, 18 for those uh, school psychologists are using cognitive assessments as part of their battery. Okay. Nine people uh, responded that they're using ED-specific scales. So uh, just as we were talking about, so like the EDDT, uh, the SAED, the BDR. Right. Um, Construct-specific scales to target things like depression, uh, executive functioning, anxiety. We had eight psychologists respond positively to that. Um, seven people are using response to intervention. So, um, I, I responded to that. What I do a lot is, uh, behavior interventions to, to just, um, give the kid, uh, specific interventions for a certain period of time. If I'm looking at, um, an emotional disturbance, just to see if I can get the child to respond positively. Sure. Um, five people are using projectives, including sentence completion. And then we had three people uh, using EDSM um, checklists. Okay. Um, so along with that, we talked about how many uh, school psychologists are doing typical ED evaluations of the year. Um, we have the majority of us are doing four to six with seven people uh, responding to that one. Um, six people responded that they're doing zero to three, uh, two people, uh, responded that they're not typically doing ED evaluations in the setting that they're in. And uh, fewer people are doing uh, 7 to 9 or 20 plus. And then the last response was working in a setting where ED evaluations are a big part of the job. Two people responded um, to them. Uh, so I don't know if this is a good spot to talk a little bit about what you might think would be a good evaluation in terms of looking at some of the criteria or at least some Maybe some tips for those of us doing doing some of these. Okay, let, uh, let, I've got a list. I didn't give a specific list, but let me find the, this the slide here. Okay, um, and yeah, it's it's on slide uh, slide fifteen. This is what I what I would recommend that you do as um, as a minimum. The thing you want to be able to do is first of all, obviously, identify the specific um, needs of the child and characteristics. Um, but this is what, these are the things I would recommend is sort of minimal. And this, you know, there's actually another slide in here that talks about the Supreme Court has actually identified what a comprehensive evaluation is. Um, that's a little further down. Um, but the, um, uh, the behavior rating skills by parent and teacher. Um, and, um, and if you, if you use something like the basket, the, the self-report measures as well. But I would recommend it to the extent possible, and the law require, it depends on your state, how much they require this, but be, at least one behavior rating scale by a parent and teachers who are involved and know the child the best. Systematic observations, which most people do. Self-report measures. Um, what I mean by these are probably uh, specific measures to, to get into, um, again, depending on the referral. I recommend that in all these evaluations that everybody at least do at least one self-report anxiety measure and at least one self-report depression measure. Um, and as appropriate, uh, the other one that comes up a lot, quite a bit, is actually um, uh, some kind of a, a ADHD checklist like the Connors or something like that. But I generally recommend that you at least do an anxiety and depression measure because uh, clinically it's very easy to miss it if you're particularly paying attention to uh, um the um, uh, things like the acting out behavior and so on. Multidimensional measures, uh, these vary. These are things like MMPIs, and I don't recommend you do MMPIs in the school, but if you can find some multidimensional measures that really sort of tap into lots of different areas like anxiety, depression, and so on. Um, behavior rating skills measure, measure behavioral and emotional functioning. They don't necessarily really measure uh, uh, emotional states, the typical mood states, and so on. Certainly clinical interviews, uh, social development histories. Um, as far as projections, I would be cautious about relying too much on projectives um, because you really can't defend them legally. Um, if you're using them as a way to interview information, or if you're using them as a way to, um, it's in my clinical information is fine, but I would not recommend that you use them for uh, a substantial part of work. Uh, for example, I like census. I think they can really offer a lot about what's going on with the child. 
but uh, a lot of these things is really um, uh, with a lot of heavy reliance on them is probably not a very good idea. So, um, so that 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 would be a minimum. Um, and then in the uh, the Supreme Court case, they recommended neuropsychological functioning. What I would probably suggest you consider in many evaluations, particularly kids who are more acting out, some kind of measure of uh, neuropsychological screener, like the Brief Two, for example, or some of the newer uh, um, you know executive functioning measures. That would probably be a good thing to add in particular circumstances. But the ones I have on slide 15, at least down to the informal measures, like projectives, um, uh, are you know, is is defensible. It's actually considered uh, part of what the IDA re talks about as a multi-method assessment. It gives you all the kinds of information that you have. And again, some states have specific requirements for what you do, so you'd have to match this up with what some states require. Like our, in Indiana, uh, it's required that you have measures of behavioral functioning, and it requires a social developmental history. Others, other uh, states may have very different laws about that. But that would give you a pretty thorough uh, history, um, a pretty thorough set of inf set of uh, data to work from, and and then what and further down one of the slides, and what I suggest you do, depending on what your state definition is is to go through, look at each criterion, and see whether the data you have support each of those criteria in your in your definition. Um, uh, if a person's depressed, scored high on a depression measure, was rated high in depression by a teacher, I go through and actually address each of those things and actually make a table. Um, list, the list the criterion that you're looking at one by one, uh, and, and then the, the other columns say whether and what whether the child meets that criterion, and if so, what is, what is uh, the basis for doing that? Or if they don't, what what is absent that they don't meet that criterion? The way the federal law reads, there there's no certain number of these things you have to do. Again, it's sort of an overall is clinical impression. Um, so go through the definition, um, make a table, and present that uh, as the foundation for making a uh, discussion with the case conference committee or your IEP team and uh, then determine eligibility that way. That, that, that's probably one of the best ways I've ever seen it done. I like that. Thank you. It's, it's very defensible, by the way. If you came before me with something like that, it'd be very, very hard for the, for, uh, for a, um, uh, for a, a parent to dispute it or a school to dispute either one because it'd be the school doing it. It'd be very, very hard for a, for a parent to dispute it. I've never seen that done hearing actually, but I uh, but I think still think it's best practice. Uh -huh. I've probably done half a dozen to a dozen um, uh, ED hearings over the years, and the, the the way people do these vary considerably. And so I think if you can develop some kind of a standardized way to do that, it'll provide a lot of good information. And if you do have to get into defending it, you've really got a pretty solid way to defend. Amen. Well, yeah, I like that. My district um, does in, uh, we've got a, a program that we plug in our information and when we're okay. doing ED evaluations, they do have that criteria there and then yeah. ask for, um, you know, source. And so you right. just list out, you know, behavior rating scale or record review or something like that. Um, it's a small, tiny little box. And I wish that I could have kind of more... Mm -hmm. Um, more space to kind of justify, but they do you know, something similar. So, meaning what I'd recommend you do that is uh, state some objective criteria like on the uh, the Basque, then the clinic a significant range, give some pretty hard data, systematic uh, observations. The child was off task eighty five percent of the time. Give some really pretty hard data um, to show that that the child is, really is very different from everybody else. And that again justifies your uh, uh, justifies a conclusion of eligibility if that's where you're headed. Uh -huh. Very cool. That's great. Um, so you, again, you can use T scores. You can use descriptors like clinically significant. You can do um, their, you know percent off task, various things like that. Just come up with some really hard data that you can verify. Um, I'll give you good information for setting up an IEP which I think is obviously the most important thing, what are we going to do for this kid? Um, but the other part is if you have to explain and defend it, you've got a pretty solid basis for doing it. 
it sounds like that that computer program is along that same that same idea. Do you want to continue through your PowerPoint, or do you want? Um, I certainly have a ton of questions that. Oh. So I've got about just a few minutes left, so let's just. You know, I think the power from this point on, I think it's they're fairly self-explanatory. So I'd be open to just doing some questions. Okay, I, I'm I'm going to start off because I've got like a whole list. I'm going to try and you know not not do the whole list. <laughs> okay. Uh, is there any long-term ramifications for that ED label um, as far as that being in the child's record? I've had kids that have, you know, looked to join the military or to be a police officer mm. and things like that. And these are confidential records, but some of these agencies I know might ask, hey, we know you have a confidential record. You told us you have a confidential record. Can you please release that to us? And so, you know, they're left with, do I release this? Do I not? If they see this emotional disturbance here, am I going to get into the military? Am I going to become a police officer? Is, you know, do we want truly ED kids doing these things anyways? Um, so is there long-term ramifications of that label? There can be. I know of, uh, uh, I had some graduate students who uh, many years ago, they, they uh, lived in Maine. And they live near Bath, Maine. In the Bath, Maine, they they uh, create uh, they make navy ships, and that's the major employer. And if you have a, a diagnosis of emotional disturbance or whatever they call it in Maine, um, that at, at that time that would prohibit you from getting a job. And um, I know I, I did a workshop on anxiety for the Washington State a few years ago. And there's a military base near there, and it's sort of the same thing. And apparently, what they can do is they ask. If you ever had this kind of a label, and if you say no, and they find out later, then they'll toss you anyway. So there can be some long-term ramifications. It's usually around the military, at least that I've run into. I can see where it could be an issue um, for um, for other jobs like police and, and security work and that kind of thing. I've mostly seen with the military, but it, the implications are are there. That and it, it I, again, as all of what I've heard is anecdotal. I know of no case law where this has come up. But it, um, but it, it certainly can have ramifications. And if you think, and what some people have done is they've used the term other health impaired instead of that because of that very problem. But at least in, from what I understand in some military settings, that, 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 doesn't, that doesn't solve the problem. So there are some long-term ramifications um, and, uh, that, that are potential. Um, and again, if you remember, and what you're trying to explain to people is the emotional disability really talks about how people, uh, how kids function in school. It, it's not designed to be a psychiatric definition mm -hmm. or diagnosis, but that doesn't necessarily help with uh, dis dissuading a military from making you not eligible. So there are some long-term consequences. <laughs> and that kind of, should we then as psychologists be bringing this up before a parent is signing consent? Should we be saying, hey, you know, we think that this is what's going on, but you need to be aware that this could have long-term, like should, we... and that kind of feeds into another question I have is how young is too young for this? I mean, if we're, if this is a kindergarten student, that that's a tough label to put on. And should we be informing parents that, hey, you know, years down the line when if your kid decides to join the military you know this might be a, this could be problematic like do we should we be up front like that and and how young is too young for ed <laughs> well as far as being up front the, the law doesn't require you to do that so that you know that so it gives you some flexibility the law doesn't require you. it doesn't actually didn't say anything the law is very silent on that issue um i think if if um as far as informing them uh, informing them ahead of time um I think that's something that you might do. Uh, I would go ahead and, and do the evaluation and just see how it turns out first. And then that might be something you would discuss in your case conference committee. You know, so the, the long-term effects. I probably would not do that up front because it may not turn out that way at all. And you may only need some just some minor uh, adjustments or whatever else. So I would probably not, um, I'd not do that at the consent stage. It's not required. I'm not sure it would be beneficial. But if you had some real concerns, like if you lived in a, an area where there's a military base, that's a major employer, that might be something that that um, that uh, you would talk about. Because it, chances are, if that became an issue, it would not become an issue unless the child were placed and the parents agreed to it. If the only evaluation was done, it probably would not even come up. 
So it really would come up more at the decision whether to provide special education services under an ED label. So I probably would do, uh, if, if that was going to come up, I'd probably do the evaluation, see what comes up, and then go from there. The approach I would take. And, I, you know, because part of that, because it's, it's not required under informed consent, um, and so probably it's not something I would do at the upfront. And then your other question was? Sorry, I right? Yeah, legally it can be from you know five up. Um, okay, I would I would uh, be inclined to uh, with with young children especially because they're changing so fast. Because mm -hmm. if, if a child's really going to have if he really does have some kind of a psychiatric disorder that is spilling over to what we call emotional disability, those really aren't very very stable as you know until probably at least eight or nine. Mm -hmm. then. So I would probably come up with some kind of a different label or a different service or a different way of conceptualizing it and not necessarily put that label on if I can avoid it. Um, what do if, you think? if you have in nine or 10, it may be a little different. What do you think, Dr. Huberti, about, the, about DSM diagnoses leading to um, ED referrals? Are, are, there, are there some that sort of naturally do or is, it, or is that problematic? What do you think about that? Well, I think, yeah, the, under federal law, um, as, as you know, a, a psychiatric diagnosis is neither sufficient nor necessary to, do, do, to uh, make a child eligible for special education. You know, and it, as a general rule, they don't help. Um, mm -hmm. When I actually see them in due process hearings, I actually don't particularly pay a lot of attention to psychiatric diagnoses. I really have to look at it from, from the educational perspective. Um, but if if you do see psychiatric diagnoses that lead to ED, more often than not, it's it's related to some kind of internalizing problem. Um, you know, back you know before DSM five, you know things like bipolar disorder, severe anxiety, phobias, fears, um, obsessive compulsive kind of behavior. Those are the kinds of things that are probably going to be more clearly in, you know more clearly what we would call emotional disturbance, and that are probably going to um, um, to show up. And the anxiety disorders are going to occur much more, much sooner developmentally than are the other disorders like depression uh, and so on. Um, and so, you, uh, so a diagnosis of uh, a psychiatric diagnosis, but more the internalizing things is probably a a reason to get indicated there's something going on. But again, you still have to put them in the context of how that's affecting their behavior at school. So, yeah, and you should not just use a scientific diagnosis for eligibility. You really have to do your own thing. Uh, I've had a couple of situations where um, pediatricians <laughs> have uh, given me diagnosis with ADHD, and they say, and maybe perhaps you see, I talked to a lot of people that have, have actually received a prescription for special education, not a prescription bed. <laughs> You've probably seen that. That carries actually no weight legally. Um, you still have to do your own thing. Just because they have it doesn't mean, and a physician prescribes it doesn't mean that that's required. That can make parents really, really upset. And another when that happens, I don't know how many school psychologists I've talked to say, "Oh yeah, I've seen the prescription pad thing." Probably yeah. <laughs> seen it too. Yes. As far as um, psychiatric diagnosis and whatnot, what if you have, um, say, a mood disorder type kid where we've got these ups and downs, but when evaluation time comes around, you know, we're stable and we're good. I know that the law has the, you know, over a long period of time and to market degree type of thing going on when you've had a period of stability for three months. Um, where does that leave you? <laughs> well, I think the law is the designed to be pretty flexible. I mean, we understand, and at the, if you're actually going to a legal proceeding, most and a psychologist testify, well, sometimes these kids do pretty well, and sometimes they have harder times. And so, what I would probably do in a case like that is write an IEP that, that you just adjust rather than saying, okay, I had three months, um, let's dismiss him, um, let's just um, track it for first several months. If the child is doing well, then um, and whatever you did is is working. Then you can begin thinking about uh, perhaps the, the site he no longer needs the services. Perhaps at the end of a school year, um, I wouldn't do it too quick. Uh, and the long period of time criteria is really kind of iffy because you have situations where the kids 
Um, they have started some of the years in the previous school year. It's carrying over to the current school year. And so you have to go back and look at the history across perhaps several months and feeding across school years. Um, but if they finally reach a point where we're stable, then what I would probably do is rewrite the, the IEP and put the child into a consultation mode. Um, and, and just basically change the IEP to make parents consent that they may not need this level of intensive service anymore, put them in a consultation mode and say, we'll review this after two or three months and then revisit that again. The child still did well. And then you say, well, he doesn't need the service anymore. That would be the approach I would take. And it's very defensively. Uh, and it, it uh, uses the possibility that you would uh, 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 you just discharge your child in case you're early. Right. And what about for initials too? Is that important for initials? If you know, if you don't necessarily have the documentation of maybe these um, psychiatric type behaviors because we're in a period of stability, but you have this maybe history of hospitalizations and history of, of this, but you haven't seen it yet because we're stable. Does yeah. that matter? Or yeah, in that case, just the history itself. Even though you haven't seen it, the history is enough to establish the pattern. Um, and then what you would do is, uh, when you get into doing your own evaluation, consider that consider that historical information, because basically what the law uh, is is really more relevant to Section 504, but it actually applies to IDA. If a person has a history of behaviors, they are assumed to be the school is actually being essentially put on notice. The child might have problems, even though they may not be showing it currently. Um, so then what you'd have to do is establish current levels of functioning and whether the child currently requires special education services. And so um, uh, I would go, go with the history, do a current evaluation. Um, it depends on your state. Some states uh, may allow you to do what's called a diagnostic period, where basically you can create like a temporary IEP or a temporary plan, do some initial observation evaluation, see how they do. Um, before you actually uh, maybe do a full evaluation or actually determine eligibility for special education. Uh, that depends on your state. Indiana does not provide for that kind of thing. They used to. Uh, so your state may allow you to do some kind of an observational period or diagnostic period um, to gather more practical day-to-day -day information without necessarily relying only on a kind of a one-shot uh, psychological assessment. Uh, and if you if you can do that, and particularly if you have a, a, a sort of a period where the child's doing pretty well, um, you can treat that as a as an observational period and diagnostic period. Again, depending if your state allows that. Okay. I'm wondering, Dr. Huberty, and this um, is just out of curiosity, I guess, but I'm wondering what comes to court more in your experience. Is it the school says the child is not eligible, um, or is it that the parents are saying the school isn't providing the right services after eligibility. Um, with, in, in, with ED, um, you, frequently what happens, um, it's actually the, the first two. Sometimes what the a frequent complaint in general special education, the school's not implementing the IEP properly. But in cases of ED, what usually happens is the child's been suspended for misbehavior or the child's had all these problems and the parent is saying, the child has this history of problems and you're not doing anything. I actually had one case where the school didn't identify a girl with uh, some obvious emotional uh, disabilities for a year and a half. And I actually ordered 270 hours of compensatory education because the school dropped the ball. I had another case where the child was 15, um, was, was doing pretty well. Um, had some mild problems, all of a sudden his behavior got worse. And it turned out he's being sexually abused in the school. Uh, again, that wasn't the school's fault, but his behavior really deteriorated if the school did nothing. And I cited the school for failing to adapt his IEP to what the, to the new circumstances. So um, most often it's about identification, of, at least as far as ED in my experience, and less often about implementing the IEP, although that has happened as well. And one of the, the the one ED case that I had that went to federal court had to do with a child who had uh, contracted uh, what's called PANDAS. It's a neurological disorder which caused a lot of psychological symptoms. And this, the parents alleged that the school didn't uh, 
program for it because it was a medical condition. The school was wrong, um, but they finally got it. They finally got it cleared away. But uh, this uh, school said, "Well, it's a medical condition. It's not ED, so therefore the child doesn't doesn't need services." And that's that's not the case. The school was wrong on that one. Yeah, hearing about um, your cases are so interesting. Is there any um, anything that really stands out for you, or, or anything that's really interested, or any tips for school psychologists or what not to do that anyone who's going maybe into a, a hearing type situation? Well, I think they. Uh, I've done a lot of workshops, and, and uh, one of the things I talk about when doing uh, school psychological work and, and that kind of thing, it's sort of my it's my real estate analogy. You know, when you hear about real estate, it's location, location, location. In school psychology, it's document, 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 document everything. Um, that will that get because um, if you if you if you document that can back it up, it's really hard to challenge it. So particularly when you're that's why when you're doing ED, that's why comprehensive assessments are really important, and and uh, and using pretty objective criteria. When you go into hearing, then basically just. Uh, uh, and the, the, uh, it's usually going to be usually a parent attorney, not always, but usually a parent attorney who's really going to challenge your data. Um, they will not challenge your skill. They will probably challenge your data as long as you have really objective data. And again, using some kind of a matrix like I talked about or something like that, you can say the child had this and this and this. Uh, the hearing officers really is most often always going to defer to the educational expertise of the psychologist. Uh, hearing officers are not supposed to in interject their own opinions. Like I see in my hearings a many times where I wouldn't have done it this way, but I can't say anything because I'm, my role is not a psychologist, it's to, it's to be a judge. Um, so documenting these things very specifically, um, addressing the criteria and being able to uh, um, explain these things very well. Um, know your psychometrics. I had uh, one, it was an uh, ED hearing. The... Uh, School psychologist said, the attorney, parents' attorney said, our IQ score standard scores. And, um, uh, or no, no really scores in the but sure. And she said, uh, in our, our subtest scores, standard scores. And she said, well, no, they're really not. But she didn't, but I don't know what she was thinking about, but, but they are standard scores. They're skilled scores, but they're standard scores. And so it kind of undermined her credibility a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, so really knowing your stuff and, and knowing, what the test measure, knowing uh, what what the what the criteria are, and and what is a clinically significant level of dysfunction, whatever else, those are things that really will protect you. And you can it doesn't mean you're going to be less nervous, but you'll be able to walk out of there feeling like you you were able to uh, accurately represent the data you had and, and the conclusions that were made. Yeah, wow, that's a great tip. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you really have to cover your bases and. Uh, and particularly with ED, because it's it's so much more subjective than some of the other than the others, uh, you really have to really do your homework, and really and really nail this stuff down, and be able to integrate the information. The other thing you have to be be prepared for too is, as you know, sometimes the data are discrepant. You know, a parent will be different than what than the teacher ratings, for example, or the parent will say, "My child doesn't do that at home, but they do at school." You've heard that numerous times. Um, you have to be prepared to explain those differences. And there may be things like you can say, well, the, the, the child behaves differently at school because the expectations are different. These are the expectations at school that may not be happening at, at home. And so be prepared to even to explain the discrepancies uh, as, as objectively as you can. Well, um, all right. I'm thinking that we'll um, look to wrap up. Rebecca, any, any questions from our audience? Um, anybody have any comments? Before um, nobody does, I, I um, got some likes on our Facebook on the podcast page. I, I posted a couple of um, quotes that I pulled from that what Dr. Huberty was saying and a couple of uh, other relevant articles. But everybody, I think, is just taking it in and, and kind of hoping, maybe hoping like I am, that they're never going to be in court. <laughs> <laughs> The, the chances aren't great, but they're always there. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, I've had a situation where a couple of my graduates have actually had to testify in front of me. That's a little weird. Oh, dear. <laughs> yeah. That's a little weird. That is. <laughs> that would, that no, would be. I agree with you, it's weird. Yeah. 
Who would you say is the school psychologist's best ally in these kinds of situations? Is it um, other school psychologists in their in their buildings, or is it administration? Is it the hearing officer? Well, I'd say it's probably other school, other psychologists in your district. Uh, you really can't access the hearing officer um, uh, directly, but if if you're in a hearing and you know the chances are you you may be maybe not call one of these hearings, but you might have to testify in a child abuse case and so on. Yeah. Uh, but there's some certain tips I can I can give you is um, you know answer the questions. Make sure that if if you ask if you ask ask a question you don't understand, ask them to repeat it. Um, and to where you can understand it. Don't let them uh, sort of bully you into giving an answer that you're not prepared for. Um, and uh, But at the same time, don't say more than what the question requires. If it's a yes, no, it's a yes, no. If they say, uh, what's clinically significant, define it. But don't don't give more information than the question they ask because it's a very easy way to get tripped up. I've seen it happen many times. Really, really good advice. I, I would need to stop myself. I talk too much. <laughs> yeah, you have to be careful about that because uh, attorneys are skilled. I mean, they uh, there's actually an axiom in, in law, and my friend is an attorney. He said that uh, basically, uh, in general, attorneys don't ask questions they don't know the answer to already. Um, mm. and, and so that's why you need to be really careful that you've really got it down so they really can't challenge you. And sometimes they can challenge you by turning a word around. But just, uh, just you know, be objective. Uh, give brief, direct answers. And if you don't, uh, if you don't understand something or, or need to say, I can't answer this question, yes or no, turn to the hearing officer and, and explain your position. Generally, in, in these kinds of hearings, they're much more flexible, and the hearing officer will generally give you the benefit of the doubt because this is not like court. It's court-like, but it's not like being in court. So you've actually got some flexibility and use the hearing officer to your advantage to make sure that you can communicate what you want to say. That happens a lot, actually, and that's the way it should be. Very cool. Um, I've got one more quick question. I want to just sneak in there, and then and then we'll wrap up for tonight. But I just wanted to know, as far as like research-based interventions and um, counseling as a related service, like counseling as a related service, do most of, would you expect most ED kids to have counseling as a related service? And um, and then just what research-based would, from a legal perspective, what what is considered research-based or where should we be looking to, um, to for that? Well, there's there's actually not been a lot of case law on uh, scientifically-based instruction in terms of challenges legally. There's not actually been a lot of case law. Um, but if, if the child, uh, as you know, if the child requires um, um, you know, counseling services to make progress in education in the school, what I would really focus, you know, the, the, the two that you're probably going to be able to, the two or three you're probably going to be able to do in schools most readily are more behavioral approaches and cognitive behavioral approaches. Those have the best research behind them. Um, some people do solution-focused therapy because that's more practical in school, and there's certainly research for that. Those are the three I would probably focus on primarily. I would not go into um, using a lot of uh, sort of uh, generic dynamic kinds of, kind of uh, counseling. Because, uh, first of all, it doesn't work as well as the others do. And it's much easier to show what you're doing and defend it. Like if you're doing cognitive behavioral therapy, you can, you know, you can have homework assignments, um, things like that. And those are, those are scientifically based, and it's going to be much easier to do those kinds of things in schools. It's also going to be much easier to show that, that, that uh, you know, it's scientifically based. The biggest scientifically based dispute we have right now that shows up in hearings is the use of the applied behavior analysis things with children with autism. That's the one that shows up most often, but there are others. Interesting. I thought that was very evidence-based. It is. But oh. It's very evidence-based, but what the dispute is, is this what the, does the school have to actually do it? And in many cases, they don't, even though, it is, even though it's evidence-based. Uh, this is a question of whether they have to provide that, and the, that gets into whole legal entanglement here, the probably more time that we, we have to get into here. But, um, you know, but use evidence-based. And when you're, when you're talking about counseling, again, those uh, counseling broadly defined behavioral approaches, uh, positive behavior, positive behavior support approaches, I include that as well. Cognitive behavioral therapy and solution-focused therapy, those are the ones that are probably the most practical and that you can maybe show some results and that you can probably do fairly realistically in the school setting. Fantastic. Well, back to you, I know we are uh, running uh, overtime, so we 
really grateful for all of your thoughts, ideas, and sharing your PowerPoint. Um, and I know uh, we may have some residual questions afterwards on the Facebook page or, um, uh, you know, we email to us. So we, uh, if it's okay, if we come up with other questions, can we send you an email? Sure. If, you, if you'd want to, if you come up with a lot of questions, so you, I'd be willing to do like another question and answer uh, thing with, with group at some point down the road. Great. Great. Thank so, you so much. I'd be happy to do that. And maybe by the next time I'll have the technology figured out better. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is fantastic. I, I know um, we've benefited from it. I'm sure him. The rest of the psychologists uh, were listening. Well, this is part. This is part of a, of a larger series of workshops and things I've done. It get you, it's even more complicated than what we talked about here. But hopefully, this will give you some sense of what it's about. And there, there's more we could talk about uh, in a in a three to six hour workshop. But hopefully, this will give you some sense of what, where I'm coming from, literally, and, and from the practice perspective. Definitely. It was so helpful. We'd love to have you back um, in the fall or next winter or when, whenever you'd like to come back, actually. Well, let me know and let me know. We'll forget in time. Great. So, All right. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Everybody. Have a good week. Have a good night.